Hello, and welcome to Two Hearts, a new Who podcast. I'm Callum. And I'm James, and this is the only podcast that... Hello, Dad. And every week here on Two Hearts, we take a look at another episode from the Doctor Who revival. And this week, we are looking at not one, but two Hearts episodes, The Doctor's Daughter and Unicorn and the Wasp. But before that, uh, a brief moment of levity. Um, I just want to say we are aware of the fact that our posting schedule has uh, significantly dipped lately. Um, You know, Callum's been changing jobs over. uh, I've recently gone back to school. I also sliced my hand open and I lost a bunch of uh, time due to that over the past month and it's just been it's been a whole thing um but we do genuinely love doing this show and the news we're going to talk about today has actually really reinvigorated us uh about mm. why we do this and um yeah we're just just want to let you know at the top of the show we know that the schedule has been a bit off where we're really going to recommit to getting these episodes out every second wednesday uh and if not you can just look on twitter and we'll, we'll be explaining why there's a delay at least yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are committed to committing to this thing, um, <laughs> you know, and definitely the news today has lit a fire under us to talk about um, to talk about the news. But also, I should point out that we had planned to do this before the news, so technically, we are better than we think we are. Yes, it's true. A little fortuitous delay on our parts. Um, and as always, a quick reminder that if you do want to join in on the conversation here at Two Hearts, you can. Uh, we are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Two Hearts Pod, and that's two the number two. Or you can email us if you have more long form thoughts at Two Hearts Podcast at gmail.com. That's two the word two. So, niceties out of the way. Um, Russell T. Davies is coming back as showrunner. <laughs> We're not going to ask each other how we are. <laughs> Nope, nope, doesn't matter. <laughs> this this news is too big. We got to give the people what they want. <laughs> okay, so let me run you through. Well, I don't need to run you through. You, the listener, is who I'm referring to. Uh, what exactly happened when I found out this news? It was yesterday morning. Uh, it was like six a.m. I think, or it's an obscenely <laughs> early time. And I got this message on my phone that was like a, a tweet. And I looked at it and I was like, eh, I don't want to do with that. So I put it back down. And then I get another message from James being like, are you up? <laughs> and I was like, okay, something's going down. And I look at my phone and I look at the tweet and I, 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 I fall into this time crevasse and I find myself <laughs> back in 2004 and the news is being announced that Russell T Davies is running Doctor Who. And I'm like, I don't remember ordering that. <laughs> <laughs> is this what we're going to get for Christmas? <laughs> Um, no, I agree. I had the exact same reaction. I kind of, I woke up from a bad dream and it was like six-ish and I was like, "Mm, I could probably go back to bed. No, I'll do the irresponsible thing and look at my phone. (laughs) And I started like reading through my Twitter timeline. And then, yeah, that was like the second or third tweet I saw while my eyes were still like trying to open up. And it was just, it was so disorientating because so many people on Twitter have been doing these like fake posts about like who the new doctor is or who the Mm. new showrunner will be. And they, they make their account look like the BBC account. And so at first I was like, ah, it's just a joke. But no, (laughs) Russell T Davies, uh, the man whose era we are currently covering, is back some 16 odd years later to to helm the 60th anniversary and beyond. I mean, that's the official line, but obviously behind the scenes, it's to quote unquote, save the show. 
Um, and I know that we have our yeah. misgivings about the Chris Chibnall era, for sure. We have not held back in that respect. Um, but it does, yes, It's it. this news brings with it uh, something that we have both been talking about uh, a lot in when we talk about Russell T, um, this sort of perfidious... Insidious, probably is actually the word I mean. Um, <laughs> infiltration of nostalgia into things. It's not just Doctor Who, obviously. This is the state of culture. This is the cultural world that we're in right now of rehashing and going back mm. to those comfort things that, you know, are safe and reliable. Um, and I'm not by any means saying that I think Russell T Davies will just do same old, same old, but his hiring alone is as good an example. It's... it's, it's it it confirms that this direction we're going into is not going to be one of trying something new necessarily for me. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Um, Cause I, I had my own reactions to this. I, I tweeted out that, um, you know, Russell T coming back as showrunner reminds me of JJ coming back to do rise of Skywalker, um, which depending on how you feel about where those, those movies went, you're going to feel one way or the other about that. Um, and I, you know, I had some pushback from that. Good people been like, Oh, you know, but this is different. Russell was going to be different. And it's like, well, we don't, we don't know that yet. All we, all we are doing so far is we're all gut reacting to the news. Mm. And for a lot of people, who have quite a bit of affection for Russell's era and who have maybe been a bit disappointed in the current era, their immediate gut reaction is this is a good thing. And for us, it's a little bit more complicated because, uh, you know, we haven't shied away on this show from the fact that our revisiting of his initial run that we're in the middle of at the moment hasn't exactly been a smooth revisit. Um, we there are There's a lot of complicated things going on in Russell's original run of Doctor Who. And so seeing this paired with what you were saying before about that nostalgia factor and this idea that everything has to sort of loop back on itself and return to the familiar, it just, it, un- it unfurled something in my stomach that made me a little bit cautious. At the same time, as I can't deny the fact that like, there's a little bit inside of me that's like, well, this is exciting. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm very much in two hearts about this. <laughs> yeah, he said the Do name of that? the show. Um, <laughs> yes, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I will say, obviously, you know, I think of the two of us, I've definitely been the champion of this show, <laughs> this era of the show. Of this era, yeah. Um, yep. in 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 some respects, um, and so I can't deny that this news brings with it. All the feelings that they want this news to bring with it. This, I, I feel, I feel optimistic about the future. I like Russell T Davies. I, I mean, I not only like I, I deeply respect him as a writer. Um, I think my feelings, my complicated feelings, are just that something that we've both arrived at, which is that he necessarily isn't necessarily the most uh, experimental or progressive or. Um, interesting of the who writers doctor who specifically yeah yeah exactly not as it relates to his who writing because my understanding of like russell's work outside of who i'm not super familiar with but i know that you've followed his career quite closely Mm. um and this is a common talking point that's come up is that like in the time since doctor who he has become a much more uh radical and interesting creator um is is that a correct assumption i I mean like it (laughs) The subject matter he tackles is definitely he's not holding back, and I don't. Th- but I don't think he ever held back necessarily before he wrote Doctor Who. Um, he 
if anything, has just gotten a bit more recognition, I guess. Um, and right. yeah, has reached a far wider audience, probably on the back of Doctor Who, but also Years and Years, which, uh, you know, struck a nerve with everybody being a very post-Brexit show. Um, <clears throat> and then It's a Sin, um, which I think, especially in the midst of a, you know, a pandemic really, uh, drew together a very vocal, the queer community quite viscerally. Mm. Um, I do just really, uh, yeah. What am I trying to say here? Twitter is not the world. It's complicated. <laughs> ultimately (laughs) oh no no for sure it's not um i just know that you know when we talk on this show like i'm i'm fairly engaged on twitter and it is ultimately like the main line of fandom that we can tap into because like i don't know what the average person thinks about doctor who anymore um it's not a topic that ever comes up in my life like you know Mm. star wars is a good example i'm very deep in star wars twitter so I, i i understand where the fandom sort of collective psyche is at and then i go out into the real world and i interact with just you know the normies and the way that they talk about star wars to me is like it's refreshing and it's sweet it's very naive almost like it's just the most like i don't know i liked the movie who cares beyond that um and i always find that fun to engage with but i never have those conversations about doctor who because it feels like every person i have ever met that likes doctor who fucking likes doctor who like you're either in or you're out you know yeah or if you're out you know it but you don't really watch it and yeah like you know of it because of cultural osmosis but that's about it Mm. (sighs) ultimately russell t's back and it it, it can't help but feel like a throwback, but I am excited, is the takeaway. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Um, it's it's disappointing in the sense that uh, I think, you know, when you and I did our episode about, uh, when we talked about Chibnall leaving, um, that, hey, this, this is an opportunity for a, a woman to step into the role mm. or for somebody like radically new to, to come in and, and really change what Doctor Who can be. Because, I mean, look, again, yeah, we don't love Chibnall's era of the show, but it is taking steps to change what Doctor Who is. We think its politics are a bit out of line, but broad stroke storytelling wise, it is trying new things. And even if we don't love them, it is doing it. Um, and the idea that all of that sort of really hard earned momentum because it is like pulling teeth with Doctor Who to try to get it to change. Um, the idea that any of that is about to be reversed or papered over or just quietly put away into a corner somewhere. Um, it is a little bit saddening because I, I want things that I like to grow and to change and to try new things. Um, Mm. and so while the comfort food element of Russell coming back is definitely pleasant, um, and, you know, the other th- part we haven't talked about here is the production side of things, which is that it's changing from in-house BBC. Yeah. I, just before you go to that, though, there was one other thing you've just said, which made me think of something, which is like the Star Wars, <clears throat> excuse me, the Star Wars, The Last Jedi uh, comparison mm. is quite uh, is quite apt because this decision and this uh, this hiring of Russell T., I think the Star Wars, The Last Jedi uh, comparison is quite apt because this hiring, if is if anything, it, it feels like a reaction against this era that we've just had. And yes, you're right. Like for all the the faults that we have claimed the Chris Chibnall era has, and definitely I think some really just stupid decisions, um, <laughs> it has tried to engender a, a new 
way of looking at this show, a new language for this show. And it is, it, it, it that was exciting. The potential of that was exciting. And um, I don't necessarily, I, I can't say that I think that Russell will just rehash what he's done before again, but mm. just by his mere presence, that's definitely the intention. That feels like definitely the intention. Yeah. And I mean, all you have to do is kind of look at his original run on the show. And I mean, the, <laughs> there's that comment that you brought up to me the other day about how he kind of wanted to see Doctor Who in the way that people see a Marvel cinematic universe. Mm. Um, and that makes me exceptionally nervous because now that he has sort of the clout and maybe the money to do that, um, I don't want that to happen to Doctor Who uh, because it, in the way that his uh, sort of finales and the sort of the end of season four is we're getting up to it now, um, how it becomes very insular and self-referential and, you know, it's it's very happy with itself. Um, and that's not inherently a bad thing, um, but it doesn't lead to the best storytelling, which is, I think, what we're going to see unfold over the rest <clears throat> of this season. Um, and the idea that we're going to have a return to that, especially after, you know, Moffat comes in and essentially does this this like deconstruction of first like or the companion first and then the doctor and then the doctor and the companion like he, he really used his time on the show to break apart all of the tropes examine them a little bit and then repiece them back together for a more modern audience and then Chibnall comes in and says all right what if now we try to do that with the very bones of the show the lore and everything and whether you think it worked or not they were doing it. Um, mm. And yeah, just if this is going to be cyclical, um, that's just, yeah, a little bit concerning. Um, but yeah, the um, modern, not modern wolf, um, uh, Bad, Bad wolf. wolf. That's the production company, right? Yeah. So Bad Wolf was established after the show finished. Oh, sorry. After Russell T left the show. Um, it's headed up by Julie Gardner, who was the producer of Russell's era. Um, <clears throat> and so will be again. Um, and Jane Tranter, who I believe was the head of BBC drama at the time that he was making Doctor Who. Um, okay. So it's, it is very much, it's, it's, it's funny because like, I, from what I understand, <clears throat> production is being moved out of BBC Wales. It's being moved out of, therefore, the Rothlock Studios uh, in Wales uh, and is being moved to this production company who, you know, will hire freelancers and, and uh, contractors mm. and, and people to make the show. Um, but they won't have a sort of an in-house or a studio, like a space to call their own. It is my understanding. I may be wrong in saying that. And there may be some okay. partnership with BBC or BBC Wales indeed, but it is. <clears throat> and that's the other funny thing is like, if, if this is true, I, I mean, it is true that Bad Wolf are attached, but if it's true that they're taking it out of BBC Wales, I find that inherently funny because Russell T literally like spearheaded the entire film industry or the way it is now in Wales and is now taking it out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Look, there's definitely a degree of irony to that. Um, there's also the fact that, um, you know, I would argue that the new era of Doctor Who is really nice looking in screenshots. And then the moment it starts moving, things look a bit off to me. Mm. Um, and so the I I can definitely understand why if he you know him coming back he might be like 
I don't think you guys have the vision or like the, the, the scope, the capability, whatever it is to pull off whatever he wants to do for the 60th anniversary and, and beyond that. Um, and so that is the part I do find most exciting is the idea of the show having a, a genuinely new look to it mm. uh, or a new vibe to it, hopefully. Um, so I, I'm cautiously optimistic about that part. And I feel like the only other real thing we need to talk about with Russell coming back is that you want to talk about sucking the air out of the room for Jody. Um, mm. It's, you know, just before we jumped on, you said we don't even have an air date for her last season yet. And we're already now trying to hype up the season after her. Um, and that's just, it, it totally, it's, it, it's <clears throat> perfectly emblematic of the entire problem with her run. She never felt like the focus and now she's not going to be the focus at the end. It, it does suck. And it, <clears throat> this announcement definitely feels like a, an attempt to sort of say to the audience, look, you know, Doctor Who's, Doctor Who's here. Russell's coming back. Watch this season. And, you know, if mm. that gets people interested in Jodie Whittaker, I don't think it will. But if it does, then, you know, maybe that will be like a, a last boost and a last hurrah at the end of her era. But, you know, at what cost? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like it's that, uh, that Matrix meme, like, not like this. <laughs> Not like this. <laughs> exactly. And we could... Uh, uh, yeah, I think we'll talk about Jodie much more as her series unfolds. And, and we'll definitely reserve our time to talk about that to that yeah. moment. Because I don't want this news to, to cloud over that. Um, I, but there are there is so much more we can talk about and speculate about Russell's, you know, upcoming era. There's... I mean, the one thing that actually sticks in my mind is, like, the... Uh, his the fact that it came out this year that he presided over two sex offenders on the show and, mm. and now he's back being yeah. rewarded for that. It's very, um, yeah, it's odd. I, I put it to you before. Like, it's just strange that we've spent the better part of this year sort of grappling with the fact that, you know, the Davies era of the show was one that was quite unsafe and uncomfortable for quite a few people. And now the moment it's announced that he's returning, that's just like, it's it's smoke it's gone mm. like that that conversation i have not seen anybody raise that point um and uh, i don't know it's it's just yeah it's, it's complicated it's it's, uh, it's complicated it is like obviously you know complicity and and who's responsible um you know like we even talked about on our show the um the recontextualization of Christopher Eccleston's remarks about his time on the show with everything that we've now learnt about maybe what was going on behind the scenes there. Even that makes it a, a drastically darker kind of interpretation of that era. Um, and yeah, it, it's just, it's another wrinkle in this entire very odd announcement. <clears throat> it is. And obviously they, they are hoping that we don't think about it, but you know, we, we think we hear. We do. We do think. Well, um, I don't know if this is the last thing. I think I said that about two things ago. But the other thing, uh, a couple of episodes back, we talked about, uh, which, you know, is like two months ago <laughs> in, in time-wise. Uh, but we had, we had a chat about that rumour that, uh, was it Ollie Alexander? Ollie mm. Smith? What's mm -hmm. his name? Ollie Alexander. Yeah. Yeah, th there was that, you know, very strong rumour that he was going to be taking over as the Doctor. Um, and I believe Ollie Alexander was on It's a Sin, right? Like, that's another connection he, that's a little bit convenient. He was the main actor in it, yes. And definitely since this announcement, his, like, uh, I don't know how betting works, but his odds have gone up <laughs> on this of yeah. the official betting site. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so that, you know, I, I'm not, I, I, that would be amazing. I personally don't think he's a very good actor, but that would be amazing. <laughs> Uh, shit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. It, it would be. And it, and you know, obviously that that brings to mind like is the the TV landscape, the social landscape has drastically changed since uh, he since Davies first ran Doctor Who. Um, you know, things are very different now. And are we maybe going to see a a bit more of that that queerness come through in in his writing this time? Um, I would love that. And also, I'd love that because for the past what five years people have been like mm, Doctor Who's too woke now we need things to go back Ugh. to Russell T Davies and now things are going <laughs> yeah, back to exactly. Russell T Davies and Russell T Davies is like what if the doctor sucked a dick <laughs> like okay five minutes live on screen be there yeah, that's <laughs> the BBC television event of the century <laughs> I'd watch Truly, truly. Um, yeah, so look, I think if you're going to take away anything from our conversation here today, um, like with most things that we talk about on the show, it's layered. It's complicated. Mm. There's no correct answer coming from us here. We're pretty much just riffing at the moment because we have very little to go off. This is all speculation um, and that's a lot of fun, but it's also a bit nerve wracking. So I, I guess just watch this space. That's it. Watch this space and we'll be here, I'm sure, to the bitter end talking about it yeah truly i know we mentioned this at the top of the show but um you know when we talked because you know around seven ish i'd say when callum finally opened his eyes properly uh, Mm. yesterday morning we we got on the phone together for about an hour and like we kind of landed on like yeah this is the kind of the shot in the arm that we needed to to get us excited about talking about the show again um because obviously life gets in the way you know you do get a bit run down by everything but um this has given us a renewed sense of uh commitment to to seeing this through and to just no matter what happens next, it's going to be a very interesting couple of years for this show. And that's going to make for a, a couple of years of interesting episodes, hopefully. Look, I mean, I was always excited about Jodie's new season. Uh, I think that the continuous story idea is interesting. Um, and I'm nothing but optimistic. Even if at the same time yeah. I'm on this show being like, well, I don't think anything's going to get better. <laughs> yeah um without further ado things that aren't gonna get any better oh oh boy uh yeah i guess i guess let's just let's get to it um this week we are talking about the doctor's daughter and unicorn and the wasp and so um uh, uh, <laughs> shall we just let's go <laughs> Yep, let's do it. Where did she come from? From me. From you? Did I see you try that? She's my daughter. Hello, Dad. The Doctor's daughter is episode six of series four of doctor who uh first broadcast in 2008 i don't have the date in front of me uh written by stephen greenhorn the famous author of the other classic lazarus experiment i don't say with any (laughs) drippings of sarcasm and directed by alice troughton um 
So, The Doctor's Daughter, the plot of The Doctor's Daughter, the thrilling story of the TARDIS has kidnapped Martha Jones and taken off into the time vortex. It lands on Messaline, a planet in mid-colonization, where the colonists are at war with the native Hath people, fish people with water tanks strapped to their mouths. The colonists generate tons of soldiers via progenation machines, and on arrival, the Doctor is forced to generate a new soldier. The result? Jenny! The Doctor's daughter, per the title. The Doctor learns from General Cobb the two sides are warring over the Source, a mythical power they believe can wipe out the Hath. While Martha is separated and forced to join the Hath to find her way to the fabled Source on the radioactive planet's surface, the Doctor, Donna and Jenny are imprisoned by Cobb for what he perceives as spreading pacifism. The Doctor rejects Jenny as his biological daughter, while Jenny observes how similar they are, soldier or not. They break out and make their way to the source, with Donna taking note of stamped dates all along the colonists' underground complex. Both sides read the source of this, reach the source at the same time, but not before Martha has a truly harrowing experience which sees her half-friend die to save her. Donna discovers the war has only been going on for seven days via the date stamps, as the progenation machines create hundreds of generations of soldiers every day, their entire history has been mythologized, turning the source into a mythical story, when in reality it is a terraforming device to bring the colonists and Hath together. Cobb won't accept this and aims to shoot the Doctor, hitting Jenny instead. She dies in his arms, and the Doctor declares the new world to be founded on the idea of a man who never would, whatever that means. The Doctor takes Martha home, but on Messaline, Jenny wakes up, steals a ship, and escapes to the stars. Aww. Do you want to know a fun fact about that ending? Sure. <laughs> um, it was Stephen Moffat's suggestion. To have her... To have her go. come back. I mean, Jenny does feel like a very early Moffat character. I could say that. I mean, absolutely. Um, I think I, it's in the book that Russell... Uh, wrote the writer's tale which actually after t- the yesterday's events I really want to go back and read um, and <laughs> it, it's something like you know the, if this ending is too downbeat you what if she woke up instead and stole a ship like her dad and and you know ran away it's very Moffat it's absolutely very Moffat it but is. it led to this like years and years of every time a Moffat season would arrive and there'd be a mysterious female character, people would be like, oh, it must be Jenny because he saved her, like, in 2008. <laughs> Little did they know, Big Finish would pick up that torch some 15 years later. <laughs> and behind the scenes, David Tennant would pick up that torch. Oh. Oh, God. <laughs> um. All right. The Doctor's Daughter. The Doctor's Daughter. Um. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Is... Uh, I think it's probably the first outright bad episode of this season um, because, you know, we didn't particularly love the Sontaran two-parter that we we covered a month ago, whatever it was. Um, but I struggled to get through The Doctor's Daughter. The first time I watched it, I ended up on my phone within the first 15 minutes, um, which usually never happens with me with Doctor Who. I just try to focus on what's going on. Um, the second time, I still barely understood what was going on. I just... I find it so difficult to pass anything in this episode because I think on paper a lot of it is is interesting and fine and full of potential, but in practice it's just so dry. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just mm. I can't say that I, I particularly cared for it beyond theoretically. I know what you mean. 
<clears throat> my favorite story about this episode is uh, Stephen Greenhorn, who wrote The Lazarus Experiment for season three. Um, I think after he wrote that episode, he he said something to... Ru- it was in an interview in Doctor Who magazine. And he said to Russell something along the lines of, you know, writing Doctor Who is really hard because you can't fundamentally change... You can't change the Doctor. You have to reset that character at the end of every week. Um, so they can go on to the next week and to the next adventure. And so Russell then said to him, okay, your pitch is the Doctor's daughter. Change the Doctor, essentially. Mm. And I find that funny because this episode doesn't do that <laughs> in any respect. And no, even if it thinks it is, even if it thinks it's challenging, like the doctor's held notions of what it is to be a time Lord of brings up his feelings of, or it's supposed to bring up those feelings of what it was like when he was a dad or like of having um, fatherly feelings I just, I don't see that. I don't see that in the episode or even ongoing or in the episode. You know what I mean? It's a very kind of trite surface level treatment of like, what if the doctor had a daughter? And the evidence of that is the fact that the opening of this episode is like, here, put your hand in this machine. Oh, my hand's in this machine. What's happened to my hand? Oh, it's a woman. Who is she? Well, she's, well, she's, she's my daughter. Hello, dad. And it's like, this is nothing but a marketing ploy. Nothing. Yeah, exactly. And it's designed for trailers. It frustrates me no end because like, this is such an interesting concept. It should have been, because one of the main reasons for doing this episode, I think from memory for Russell is like, he described this and the unicorn of wasp, unicorn and the wasp as like tent poles in the middle of the season to prop up the viewing figures, basically. So people don't get disinterested and just dip out and then dip back in for the finale. And it's like, that's cool. Do that. Don't just <laughs> do a title. Do you know? Yeah, I, I know just what you mean. Um, it's interesting that Greenhorn had that sort of um, uh, approach with, oh, well, if I can't change the Doctor, like, let's let's do this instead kind of thing. Um, especially because I find this episode to be a... Uh, I guess like the the opposite of a tour de force or like like a tour de week of <laughs> uh, RTD's Doctor Who beats. Do you know what I mean? Like mm. there's the shouty speech, there's running up and down corridors, there's, uh, you know, ooh, ooh, <laughs> like choir music playing while he sadly recalls the trauma of war. Like it's all good stuff that we've just seen so many times before. Um, and mm. uh, yeah, I, I just think it's ironic that an episode that set out to change something ended up making the most formulaic one of the bunch. Totally. I mean, the amount of times the doctor's like, you know, mm, you're a soldier. So therefore I can't trust you. It's like, Ugh. I don't know how many times we have to go through this. I, 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 I just, anytime they mention war or soldiers in doctor who, I'm just like, I don't give a shit. I just don't yeah. care. Um, well, it's because they ran out of interesting things to say after, like, season two. Well, like, the Time War stuff, it, it that it should have moved beyond war into just, like, loneliness. And the fact that he's still like, yeah. you know, I can't... Oh, I could never pick up a gun. I never would. A man that never would. It's like, I know this already. I, I know... <laughs> we as an audience know this. And actually, it'd be more interesting if you shot him, because that would change yeah. you. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, um, agreed. I don't, I'm not saying necessarily that every single episode needs to change the Doctor to the point where, like, they, they are no longer recognisably the same character. Obviously, that's not it. But you have to hope that if an episode's going to do a concept like this, that it will have some ongoing repercussions. And it's the same thing we talked about with the Timeless Children, right? And how, like, mm. there was the revelation that there was a Doctor that the Doctor didn't know about. And then next week, they're like, ooh, Praxius, I'm on a beach. Blah, blah, um, And there was just no... Plastic fo- is bad. Like, oh, uh, uh, do, do you not want to grapple with what you've learned? <laughs> like- you better learn your lessons or else... Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> Shit, sorry. Oh, often 55. Um, no, I, I do agree with you, though. Like, there, there's, no, there's no staying power to any of this. There's no weight to any of it. It's just... Uh, it's like lip service to drama, you know? It, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Um, it, yeah. I don't have a lot to say about this episode. I'm going to be perfectly honest. It's, it's, mm. and I think you feel the same way, right? Like it, it just washes over you. The other th- a wasted potential of this episode is Martha, obviously. Yeah. I think Martha's the biggest like talking point that you and I have here because it's just, such an odd episode to follow up the two-parter that we just had with Martha, which, you know, the the Sontaran stuff sidelines Martha completely. It separates her from the Doctor, it replaces her with a clone when she is back with the Doctor, and so by the time that we get to the end of that episode, it's just like, oh, and I guess Martha was technically here, but she kind of technically wasn't at the same time. It's a whole thing, right? And then so to to dovetail into the Doctor's Daughter, where immediately the script separates Martha and the Doctor again. Mm. Um, It it just makes me wonder why they bothered to bring her back in the first place outside of that, like, you know, Marvel-esque endgame setup that we talked about when we talked about that last two-parter. Because plot-wise, I can see the functionality of having her in that two-parter. But here, I I fundamentally don't get it. Um, There's nothing added to Martha's story here other than a a little bit of subtext which we'll we'll talk about in a minute because you and I both actually like that part of this episode um but in terms of the overarching character work that they do with her that there's there's nothing here she doesn't really contribute to the plot uh her and the doctor's relationship isn't developed here it's just and Martha's here everybody but don't worry there's a plucky blonde white girl that we need to focus on instead it's Mm. it's baffling you brought up a really interesting point in, when we were talking about this episode where you were like the scene where the doctor unveils the map and the hidden layers in it and mm. how that could have been a scene of Martha finding, you know, something active for her to do, but instead the doctor does it and it affects what's happening on Martha's side. And she's just like, Oh, there's some layers that have just appeared in front of me. Um, yeah. And how, what a glaring like kind of example that it is of where, there are opportunities for Martha to be a more active player that they don't take because they're just going in the eight, like they're just rushing forward with the, like, she just needs to say snappy lines, like who the hell are you? And, and run upstairs. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and that's, uh, that's showing agency for a female character. Exactly right. It's that like that 2000s problem with women in action and sci-fi stories where it's like, well, they have to be hyper-competent, closed off and sexy. Um, And like, admittedly, like Martha gets to dip out of that when she gets up to the surface in just a, Mm. a, a 
very bizarre scene. Let's talk we'll get about to. it. Um, well, no, because I, I kind of want to talk about that agency issue that you just brought up first, because um, it's there's you can see the potential here if this was a two-parter or if this was just an episode that knew how to manage its time better, where you follow a parallel story to the Doctor. So the Doctor's helping one side of the army, Martha is over there helping the other side of the army, and in showing the contrast and differences in how they assist those factions, you can show, hey, this is why she's not with the Doctor anymore. This is the person that she's become without the Doctor. This is the person that she will be when she has to play that role in the finale. There is potential there to tell a very Martha focused story but because they do the Doctor's Daughter stuff in the same episode um, you know I, I said this to you there's three women here you know because remember Donna's here as well <laughs> um, Donna the Doctor's Daughter and Martha and they're all just like running around like oh isn't the Doctor brilliant and it's like what What are we doing like wh- what are you trying to say what are you focusing on here <laughs> so You've just given me an idea, and I feel like this is slightly off topic, but, like, <clears throat> because we're both creative people, listeners, and so you just you were just talking about that, and I immediately started thinking of an alternate version of this episode, which doesn't have the Doctor's Daughter in it, which has them split up as normal, and then the episode pretty much plays out as it normally would, with the Doctor and Donna on one side, and then it, like, halfway through, cuts back, goes back, and you see everything from Martha's perspective. Oh, right, yeah, okay. And how, yeah. like, all the Doctor's little things that he does, like, impacts on her, but, like, negatively, and how, <laughs> what a, like, a... Right, yeah. What a, a a big metaphor that would have been for, like, how... what their relationship is actually like. Because, like, <clears throat> there is that one scene that we're going to talk about where Martha and her Hath friend are crossing over the surface of Messaline you know, and it's radioactive and they're in danger of death and she's on her own and she's scared and frightened, but she's, you know, plucky and she's getting it done. And then she falls into a, like a, a, a crevasse into this like quick sandy kind of mucky stuff and starts sinking. And, you know, all credit to Freema Adjaman because she fucking sells the shit out of this, like the level mm. of terror uh, of that situation. She is like, she, the way that she says like, you know, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, I'm sinking, help. And it's like, oh fuck, I, I believe you're, I believe you. So she gets pulled, her half friend pulls her out, but he falls in as well and drowns and dies essentially. And there's a horrible like cracking sound of the glass tank breaking and, and it's awful. And then, you know, Martha's like screaming like, no, no, no. And just crying and like despondent. And the camera lingers on her for like 30 seconds. It Mm. feels so long. It's a great piece of acting. It's a great piece of, of um, horror, I guess. And my take, and I think yours as well, on this scene is, like, how much it exemplifies how much she doesn't like travelling or how much her, <laughs> like, her experiences of travelling with a doctor have been less than those of Donna and Rose, you know. She doesn't get the glamorous side of the world. She gets the slums. No. Exactly. Her adventure has always been defined by 
darkness basically um and so you know and this is maybe one of the few this is one of the few things in the episode that does work you know she's on the surface losing the only connection she's been able to make here after being separated from her friends meanwhile the doctor is underground processing his trauma with a brand new daughter like it's always martha that gets saddled with the shitty side of the adventure um and that is really interesting subtext but like everything that they did in martha's season it's only ever subtext because the next time we see her with the doctor she's just like oh i went the long way around lol it's like uh. and it <laughs> uh okay yeah and it also just feels entirely accidental and not at all intentional exactly yeah it's um it, it, again it's just like why why is martha here and we don't say that as a Ugh, why is martha here we say that as a why are you doing this to martha like yeah. if you're gonna bring her back for three whole episodes why was it for nothing that's it it that's it it, it really does feel it, it, I, yeah, it's, yeah, maybe it was in an attempt to like set up the finale where everyone comes back and to like ready the audience for this. Um, yeah. maybe I just, but like they did that with the two-parter, like they established she was part of unit that she's an army doctor now and yeah. that she's competent and living her life on earth like it's specifically her inclusion in the doctor's daughter that i find the most like what what is this um speaking of the doctor's daughter Mm. jenny (laughs) oh jenny um the thing about jenny that i find most sort of off-putting is she exemplifies um I'm not going to say to a T it's like a spinoff of uh, there's a trope in sci-fi. It's like born sexy yesterday, I, I think is, is what it's called. But it's this idea that, you know, um, the fifth element is a really good example of this where the, uh, Mila Jovovich's character in, in that film is kind of like very brand new to the world, literally having like sort of just come into everything like yesterday. And she's already competent and sexy and like the, the ideal woman, but at the same time being treated by the script and by people involved in the story, story as a not as a child necessarily but as like oh oh you poor thing you simply must be protected um and that's a a spin-off of that is what i'm seeing with jenny here in that you know she pops out of this machine and she's already wearing eyeliner she's already sassy and she's already perky and fun and just sexy and everything that the doctor's daughter should be and it's like it's just it's not inherently bad i just find it really boring it yeah it it leaves no room for it, it won't, I won't say it leaves no room for development because I think you could write a story about a character who does come out of the machine fully formed and then learns to rebel against their inheritance and I think that is slightly mm-hmm. what's happening here um the problem is that the treatment of that concept as with everything we've talked about with this episode uh is so surface level and trite and so there's a scene where the doctor and uh it's like you know you're you're an echo you're nothing more you know you 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 don't understand your inheritance and and she's like you know i don't understand my inheritance but i know that you know we are the same we are similar i'm born from you um Mm. which is probably the closest we get to sort of like a a discussion of, of, of her internal thoughts and her feelings, because beyond that, it's just, Oh, I'd love to run. Oh, I'd love to, I'd love to see the stars, dad. I'd love to run with you. And it's, 
that doesn't feel like it's digging for anything. Well, no, because it's the same thing that we've gotten with all of the companions so far as well. It's just like, oh, yes, show me the stars, Doctor. But this time it's his fake daughter. And it doesn't help that Gen- Georgia Moffat is <laughs> not very good. No, no. And look, I know that talking about acting ability on here is always a bit a bit of a wobbly thing to bring up because we don't want to be mean-spirited and whatnot. No. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. It, it's just difficult to feel anything for this character who feels who feels like you know you know like she came out of of a machine to be plot ready and then be discarded within that same plot. Um, totally. I don't, yeah, like I don't, she's just not given much to work with, so I don't entirely lay the blame at her feet. Um, and then uh, Donna's here, you know. Donna is probably one of the better aspects of this episode just by sheer fact of being Donna and being played by Catherine mm-hmm. Tate I love yeah I love I, ju- I do genuinely love the the chats that she has with David Tennant and it's so obvious that they care a lot about each other um and the scene where she's like you know where he says you know something along the lines of you know I look at her and I, I see everything I've lost and you know I don't know how I could ever be close to her and she's just like I don't often tell you this but I think you're wrong like mm. I would love for them to go further in that, but I just love that that scene exists in and of itself because I just, you know, Rose would never say that. She'd be like, "Mm, (laughs) he's not thinking about me. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. And then Martha would be like, "Mm, he's thinking about Rose. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, Donna's definitely the better aspect of this episode. Can we talk about Jenny's death scene? Yeah, okay. So, you know, the two armies are racing to get to the source, uh, and that turns out to be um, a uh, a terraforming bomb of some sort, uh, but like a good bomb, like a positive bomb. Um, and so they get there, and the Hath and the humans are like, this is all so silly. Why are we fighting? And they all put their guns down, except for the crotchety old General Cobb, who's like... Ah, no, all I know is war. I won't be convinced otherwise. And he tries to kill the doctor and ends up killing Jenny instead. Um, And, you know, it's a scene that happens in The Doctor's Daughter. But then can we talk about, like... (laughs) So, (laughs) she's been shot. She's in the doctor's arms. Donna and Martha run down (laughs) to her. And Martha's like, I don't know, feeling her chest or something. (laughs) Or feeling her wrist. Martha's like, who is this? (laughs) Hi, nice to meet you. My name's Martha Jones. Who the hell are you? Um, <laughs> and, and then and then Donna's like, you know, without any trace of emotion, she's just like, is she going to be okay? And Donna and Martha turns around, she's just like silently shaking her head like, no, no, she's not. She's been shot. <laughs> and then they both get up and walk out of shock. So that the doctor and Do- and the doctor and his daughter can have a heartfelt scene, I just it makes me cry at how badly and obviously staged the whole thing is. 
Yeah, it's um in in an episode full of fumbled balls, it's it's certainly the loudest one that hits the floor. Um, I I, I don't know. I just I, I I think it's an awkward moment that I don't really feel anything for because I, as we've established, I don't really feel much for Jenny as a character. Um, and then we launch into another David Tennant speech, um, which kind of like the stuff at the end of uh, Planet of the Ood. Uh, it's like, okay, yes, I can see how this fits into the thematic work that you're doing season-wide, which we, you and I both gem- generally appreciate. This idea that the Doctor's God complex and his his stature in the universe inside his own head is just expanding constantly uh, this season. And so in Planet of the Ood, we thought it was a bit awkward because the Doctor didn't really do much in that episode. And then here... You know, it's, oh, you know, make the foundation of your society a man who never would. And the idea being, you know, that he is now building societies in his own image, unintentionally even. Um, And that works thematically. I just think in the moment, it's just another shouty David Tennant speech. And the score, like Murray Gold, whose work I know you appreciate and I'm trying to appreciate a bit more. But this episode as a whole is is really um, bad at pumping that music in to tell you how to feel at any given moment um and so when he gives this big a man who never would speech it's just again it's that tour de week of of these like very traditional rtd doctor who beats Mm. Uh, and it just means the the emotional combination of this episode falls really flat for me i will say with with murray in particular like he doesn't yes he he definitely does contribute um bombastic kind of scores <laughs> to scenes that maybe would have had better been better scored i think when i say i like i really appreciate him it's for his very specific themes for characters during this era and then most of the work he does for moffat in particular peter capaldi yes yeah, that's fair. And, and also, like, it's it's not as if Murray Gold is out here editing the episodes. You know what I mean? Like, I'm I'm aware that he's not the dude who's choosing to put all of his music into these scenes. Exactly. Um, it's just it's unfortunate that they don't trust the audience enough to not be like handheld by the music. You're right, and and this scene in particular is an example of of that. Um, and it again, it's not to bring it back to Peter Capaldi again, but it, you can't. <laughs> I can't help but compare this brief like make the foundation of this place a man who never would and then look at like an episode like the saigon inversion which dedicates 10 minutes yes to a fantastically even if it's i don't think generally television should dedicate long periods of time to speeches unless they're incredibly Mm. worthy and that was one that i think is worth its time yeah and this episode's already got enough happening that it can't also be an anti-war statement at the same time. Um, yeah. But it, it, it's just, it's, just, it's so much. It's just so much. And just sometimes <laughs> I wish they would just focus on one fucking thing. It's like the opposite of, of like Chris Chibnall, where it's like he has really good ideas that he just buries and does nothing with. <laughs> it's like there's all these really fucking, that, there's all these good ideas that are just given no time and and no care yeah yeah exactly right um i don't know that i have much else to say about the doctor's daughter god me neither and i'm giving it a c that's generous you know for a second i forgot that we did letter gradings i was like 
What do you mean you're giving it something? <laughs> um, that's how long it's been since we've recorded. Uh, okay, I am going to give The Doctor's Daughter a C-. minus. Beautiful. Well, that's The Doctor's Daughter, and stick around. We're going to talk about the unicorn and the wasp right now. Agatha Christie. What power? That's me. No! Chief Inspector Smith from Scotland Yard, known as The Doctor. Miss Noble is the plucky young girl who helped me out. I say, there's a murder, a mystery, and Agatha Christie. So, happens to me all the time. Show yourself, demon. No! There's nowhere to run. Thrillers in the chase, never in the capture. Oh my God, if anyone can solve this, it's you. Unicorn and the Wasp is episode 7 of series 4 of the Doctor Who revival. It was written by a man whose name we don't need to mention here and directed by Graham Harper, old friend of the show, Graham. Uh, very briefly, the plot is, is a bit of a nothing, so I'm just going to run you through it as quickly as I can. Uh, the Doctor and Donna land in 1926, where they invite themselves to an upper-class luncheon at the estate of Lady Edison. As the festivities get underway and a handful of guests arrive, including the one and only Agatha Christie, a man is found dead in the library and a murder investigation ensues. Assembled for the luncheon is the local priest, an heiress from London, Edison's husband and gay son, the housekeeper, and so on. Hijinks ensues as Donna discovers a ginormous, a flippin' huge wasp on the grounds, which promptly attempts to kill her. As the day progresses, the wasp creature murders two more people, the Doctor is poisoned but survives, and finally Agatha and the Doctor summon the remaining guests to the lounge for a good old-fashioned whodunit reveal. Turns out the Wasp is actually the priest, who is actually Lady Edison's long-lost son. Returned to the estate to snatch his mother's necklace, which is actually an alien artifact that she got from an affair with an alien Wasp man in 1885 in India. It... It's really a whole thing. Uh, after some hilarious misunderstandings, Agatha lures the wasp away before Donna helps her drown it in a lake, severing the psychic link that the rider was sharing with the wasp due to the necklace that she had around her neck, causing her to lose all memories of these events. Donna and the Doctor laugh merrily and fly away in the TARDIS for more adventures. Callum, the unicorn and the wasp. How are we feeling? Um, <clears throat> I love it. I love the unicorn, the wasp. I loved it when it went out and I love it now. Um, and there was a long, I think there it's still now people generally in the doctor who universe don't look down on this episode, which frustrates me. I'm not going to go out on a limb and like defend it necessarily because I know the author is a piece of pile of crap. Um, doesn't need to go into here. We've already talked about that in Shakespeare and the, the Shakespeare Code. Um, but just generally, the comedy of this episode is pitch perfect. I love that. It completely plays to Catherine Tate's strengths, uh, this episode. Um, I think it, it's a good little runaround. And you had a not too dissimilar experience the second time, right? Uh, yeah, so when I first revisited this, I I hated it. I was like, oh, it's so silly and so boring and blur. I'm boring, blah, blah, blah. I had a very James reaction to it. Um, and then I don't remember... Oh, that's right, because I watched it, and then it turns out we waited 
three months to record this or something. Like there was a massive gap in time. Uh, and so I was like, all right, well, I need to rewatch these two episodes. Um, rewatched The Doctor's Daughter, found out I really genuinely did hate that one. Um, and then I rewatched Unicorn and the Wasp and I had the best time with it. I don't know what it was, uh- but... Uh, well, actually, no, that's a lie. I do know what it was. Callum and I had had several conversations about it because I tend to... I, I wouldn't say I bring too much to when I watch Doctor Who, but I do have expectations of sort of what I'm going to get from an episode. <clears throat> and talking to Callum about it helped me kind of reframe it as, hey, don't take it seriously. Like, if you just... If you engage with this uh, episode as broad stroke not quite a parody but just a very tongue-in-cheek episode of doctor who it is the funniest the show has maybe ever been like top to bottom even the serious parts are funny when you view it as hey everybody who was involved in this really understood that what they were doing was goofy um and so when i engaged with it through that lens i think this is a, a phenomenal episode of doctor who you just need to think about this episode as a as a comedy it's it's a comedy yeah and when you look at it like that it all it all ties together um <clears throat> even if it isn't necessarily a good episode <laughs> like with its uh, sci-fi elements um <laughs> it I, it fully commits to the the aesthetic and the the world that it's uh putting down and i think if we're going to go down this route with historicals where they have a historical figure and the episode, which I, I enjoy as a concept, where the episode sort of forms part, it it, it becomes a, like almost like a text in their own uh, canon, shall we say? You know, like Shakespeare Code. Mm-hmm. It's witches. It's medieval <clears throat> kind of thing. And then here with you know Agatha Christie and a murder mystery. I think this is the better example of the two. It still falls into the same traps of like making that historical figure an amusement park for the time travelers to to sort of like jump <laughs> into and play with but there is a, a touch more humanity than there was in shakespeare code and also just generally i love that concept of like going back in time and 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 having fun with it and not being so like the past is the past and it can't ever be changed and there's room for that and this season did that with you know the fires of pompeii and that was a great episode and this is another mm. great historical episode that does the complete opposite. Um, it it these are like the versatile yeah. elements of Doctor Who that that make it so successful. I think. Uh, agreed. This episode does serve as a really good mirror to Pfizer Pompeii. Like for every serious beat that we loved about that, there's a joke beat here that I think you and I really get a kick out of. Um, the sci-fi stuff that you talk about where it's probably at its weakest writing. Like I, I do think the the weakest stretch is when they have to like explain everything that's happening there's like a there's a five minute-esque kind of uh exposition-y flashback-y scene towards the end of the episode um where everything gets kind of laid out on the table for you and that's where oh the an alien came down and impregnated somebody and they fell in love and but it turns out the alien is a wasp that is the weakest part of the episode (laughs) but even that does tie nicely back into you know i think the first time i saw the giant wasp i i said to you i was like this is the this is the dumbest shit in the world. Like, this isn't even trying. I was like, yeah, no, that that's the point. Like, I, I, the point is that it is meant to be absolutely absurd that this alien is just a giant wasp. Um, and 
so when you lean into that interpretation of the script, like I think you can have a really good time with all the elements here down to stupid shit. Like the priest who turns out to be the wasp when he gets angry, he's like, don't tell me what to do. And it's like, Oh God, it's so silly, but it's nice to see doctor who have this much fun with itself. Totally. And I think this is, there is definitely a place for this. And I wish that there was a more, uh, I think I, it's the kind of thing, it's like where we talk about, you know, in a season there needs to be, not, there doesn't need to be a few bad episodes, but invariably there are bad episodes that balance out the good ones. Um, and by that same token, in every season there needs to be shades of light so that it, the dark stands out more so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If it was all of one color, one shade, one uniform type, I would be bored so quickly. And that's not the show that I want, or I don't think that you want either. And, you know, no. an episode like this is so, it's like a tonic um, mm-hmm. in the middle of this series. Um, and, uh, yeah. Especially given that we're about to topple into some very dark stuff with season four. Oh, totally. And,. The next episode, next two episodes, is like basically going to be a dry run for the Moffat era, and then we're heading straight to the finale. It, it's getting darker from here on out, basically, and yeah. so it's nice. And I think every companion sort of has this. Like Fear Her would probably be the example for Rose, where it's like yeah. the last hurrah before everything goes to shit. It's the fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> this is. Uh, perhaps a bit early than we would have liked, but this is probably that for the Doctor and Donna. Yeah, like, it's it's unfortunate because I think the Unicorn and the Wasp as a, as a celebration of Donna and the Doctor, like, their relationship in this is pitch perfect. Like, this is so sweet and wholesome and fun. And it, it really is, like, a, a great opportunity for Catherine Tate and mm. Tennant to bounce off of each other in a very naturally comedic setting, which they both excel at. You- um, so all that stuff is really, really good. It's just, yeah, like you said, because it is, like, it's the midway point of this season. Um, and, you know, Silence in the Library 2 part is, like, again, a really good Donna story, but it's quite a dark Donna story. And then we get, what's Midnight next, right? Uh, midnight and then turn left and then the finale yeah exactly yeah so like midnight is a super dark doctor story turn left is a dark donna story and the finale does what it does to donna's character um and so this really is the last moment we get to smile and breathe out with these characters properly uh before we head into just this like you know domino effect of of trauma and shit that's about to fall onto them um and so yeah it's it's good in the sense that i think it's it's a great you know, nightcap before the next day harsh light arrives. Um, but it's sad in that, you know, as we just sort of discussed with the past three episodes, that two part of the brought Martha back isn't particularly great for Donna, except for a couple of small moments. And then the doctor's daughter isn't great for anybody really. Um, and so it just doesn't feel like we had enough time with Martha, uh, with, with Donna rather. Um, but that's less about this episode and more about sort of the, the seasonal structure as as it is as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that Unicorn and the Wasp individually in a vacuum is is a genuine joy. Can, can I just say one thing? Mm-hmm. This is the first episode that David Tennant and Catherine Tate filmed for the new series together. What? Yes. And it is like they've been wow. friends for years at this stage. Yep. Like, I think if if there was going to be any 
episode that exam exam exemplifies just how well they work as a unit. For me, it's this one. Um, yeah, because they are just like it's almost like I would believe if they were like finishing one another's sentences, they are that in sync with one another and in sync with the mm-hmm. show. Um, and it maybe it helps that this episode is one that, like I said, plays to Catherine Tate's strengths, but also plays to their strengths together because Catherine Tate definitely brings out the lighter, I think, uh, better side of David Tennant as an actor. Um, Agreed. And, you know, he, I don't, I don't generally, this is the awful thing is like, I don't generally think about David Tennant much when we watch these episodes for review. He's, he's not, um, yeah. I love him as an actor, but he's not definitely not my favorite doctor. Um, but yeah, he is electric with her specifically. Yes. Um, uh, agreed. Agreed. Um, and I think it, that's not just the comedy either. Uh, there's also the fact that like, you know, who doesn't love a whodunit? You know, like there, there's so much good stuff in in the bones of this episode that just allows actors to have fun. It's the period setting. It's that the old timey kind of like, oh well, I never would suspect it was done in the library with a lead pipe. Like it's it's goofy, but in the same way that it gets, it's like a theater kid's dream. You know, like it, <laughs> it allows these actors to just kind of like explore elements of these characters that we might not typically get to experience because it is a fairly low stakes story. Like people are dying left and right, but the, the, the party just keeps going. <laughs> like it, it doesn't mm. want you to get hung up on the, the, the darkness of this story. It is, it is explicitly telling you this is just a fun ride and you need to let go and go along with it. And if you're willing to do that, you get treated to just this great litany of, of performances. Which isn't to say that it doesn't also linger on those moments. I mean, there's two, like it, it allows a moment of Donna to be like, you know, gosh, that poor footman who was in love with the, the son and he 26, he can't even mourn him. Like it, it allows yeah. those things be acknowledged, even if it knows that it can't go into those details because that's not what this episode's about. Um, it's the same with, I think, m- one of my favourite scenes in this episode is the one where Donna consoles uh, Agatha Christie. And Agatha's like, you know, mm. uh, I, I, I fell in love with a man and and he he left me for a younger woman. Isn't that always the way? And, you know, and Fenella Woolgar plays that and plays her role, like, very well, but plays that scene with just, like, this wistful, perfect kind of, like, mm. I wish things had gone a different way. And then, because this episode is this episode, Donna follows it up with, yeah, that happened to me, but mine was with the giant spider. <laughs> it's pitch perfect, but it doesn't ruin what's come before it. Again, which I think yeah. was one of the faults of the Shakespeare Code. Um, yeah, agreed. A, a common criticism you and I have had of a lot of this era of Doctor Who is that it struggles to sometimes match tones together. Uh, and in the melding of that, it, it can really fall on its face. Whereas this episode is the complete opposite. The It seamlessly flows between drama and comedy and genuine emotion and funky fun stuff. It's just, it's really good. <laughs> it's really good. It's really good. Um. My favorite, you, you brought up there, like when uh, they're having that heart to heart outside in the little like garden area, and she gets that great line, you know, mine was a giant spider and whatnot. And then <laughs> the, the way that uh, Agatha Christie transitions out of this like you know traumatic reverie into 
Now, hold on a minute. <laughs> Those peonies, they've been crushed. Someone's been in the garden. It's like, uh, sure. <laughs> okay. It's a good, <laughs> um, yeah, she plays it so yeah. perfectly. Can we just- She does. What's that actress's name? Fenella Woolgar. Shout out to Fenella Woolgar. If you're listening to this, just know that like you absolutely crushed it. Oh, absolutely. She was pitched. She has just one of those 1920s faces, you know? Like with She really does. The yeah. eyes and- like the moon. Yeah, kinda. <laughs> um no, she's You're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, just like the moon, yeah. <laughs> I just I, I there's a temptation, I think, for us to just run through our favorite jokes from this episode. Um but I will just focus on a couple. What? No. Okay. No, I, I'm probably going to give into that temptation. Um, like, yeah, I've already got one lined up. <laughs> just from the beginning, when Agatha Christie comes out onto the lawn and she's like, "A lady who needs no introduction," and <laughs> she's like, she goes up to the doctor and she's like, "Agatha Christie," and Donna's like, mm, "What about? Her? What about her?" <laughs> she's like, "That's yeah. me." No. It's so perfect. And then before that, when Lady Edison comes out on the lawn, she's like, who exactly are you? And what are you doing here? It's like pitch perfect British comedy of just like, you know, we're being terribly polite, but what the fuck's happening? Exactly. Exactly right. And I think they riff on that later when it's like, how can we, how can we move on with, with dinner? If somebody has been murdered, they're like, we're British. <laughs> like, um, it's it's very silly, but it, it works quite nicely. Uh, I think my favourite uh, gag, it's a prolonged one. After the doctor gets poisoned, um, they end up in the kitchen because he's trying to, like, make this, you know, concoction of things to, to get the poison out of his system. And it turns into this, like, prolonged game of charades between him and Donna. Oh. <laughs> and it is just... It, it's one of those examples where you're like, how was this their first time filming together? Because the way that they riff off of each other, um, there's like, it's joke after joke after joke and every single one of them land. It's, it's a truly impressive bit of acting. Oh, that scene is amazing. It's, it's it, yeah. <laughs> when he douses himself in like ginger beer. Yeah. It, 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 uh, the physical comedy is something to, to be spoken for, I think, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Like doing the jazz hands oh. as he's trying to like convey something to her. And she's like, oh, it's, it's a song, a song. <laughs> Daring Inferno. No. <laughs> um, oh, it's so great. And to have Agatha Christie there as like the straight man to both of their <laughs> idiocy is, is brilliant as well. That's actually, that's a very good point. I didn't think about that. I did not think about that. Mm. That's very true. Um, my favorite of this two for me, it's when... Donna's been attacked by the wasp and she shuts the door and the doctor and Donna, uh, the doctor and Agatha come up and, and they're like, what's wrong? And she's like, there's a wasp. And she's like, oh, it's only an insect. And she's like, when I say pig, I don't mean pig. I mean flipping enormous. And just the way she like, the way that Donna, like yeah, Catherine Tate just like emphasizes every single word in that joke. It's so yes. good. And then my she is oh. sorry. And then my other favorite bit again is another Donna joke, but it's during the interrogation at the end. And every time Donna, every time the Doctor or Agatha like start on a new person and make an accusation, Donna's just like, "So she killed her." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like I love that. Yeah. I also love that because like, if you were in this scenario, in this totally absurd scenario. I feel like you would have fun with it in that way and be like, 
oh, she killed her. It's like when people watch murder mysteries and they say every single, like, person is the murderer. Yeah. It's it's just, it's funny, but it's also real. <laughs> agreed. Very much agreed. Oh. Um, and I think like, that's, that's kind of the rub about Unicorn and the Wasp is that it's a really difficult one for us to talk about because, you know, we've kind of covered you know, why we think it works and sort of how we think you should, as an audience member, approach this episode if you want to get the most out of it. But beyond that, like, there's there's not really much here. You know, like, yeah, it's, it's really good to see Doctor and Donna having fun together. That's kind of about it. Um, and that's not a, a, a negative thing by any stretch. It just means that, you know, when we sit down and try to record a podcast about it, I'm not sure we have more than 20 minutes of things to say. <laughs> True. I think the only other thing we would talk about is um, that wasp... <laughs> Oh, the the wasp. First of all, the reveal of the wasp, when Donna's in that room with the giant magnifying glass, and she's like, ah, there's a bee behind here, because she can hear the buzz, buzz, buzz and whatnot. And she thinks it's just a bee trapped in the room. She's like, it's okay, I'll find you. And she, like, looks through the massive magnifying glass as she pulls it back, and you reveal this huge wasp. It's It's comedic. It's sci-fi, you, it's dumb, I love it so much. You loved it because, like, the way she was like, I shall find you with my little <laughs> magnifying glass. Exactly. Like, it's just Catherine Tate firing on all cylinders. Um, and the Wasp itself is, well... A good okay. CGI creation. So, yeah, a, a decent enough CGI creation. Um, I think that the the stuff with Lady... What's her name? Edison? Edison. Ed, Eddie... Edison, yeah. The the whole reveal that, like, Lady Edison, you know, ooh, travelled to exotic lands in the 80s and had an affair, and there's maybe some uh, subtext there that you could read into. I, I, I don't, personally. I don't think this episode really gives a shit about any of the things it might be accidentally saying about, you know, mysteries of the Orient and that kind of bullshit. Um... That's, that's kind of about it. I'd say that's probably the deepest it ever gets is accidentally stumbling into something like that. I don't know how you feel about that, though. I mean, I think that it's all part and parcel of this era of Britain history and ergo uh, Agatha Christie's novels is like, mm. she wrote these books at the end of the decline of the British Empire, um, but was also a part of that. And so, you know, references to people like British people living in India before you know lib- before India was liberated and um all that kind of stuff like it, it rings true um there's a line mm. Mm. and actually I don't know no I don't think there is a line but it, just <laughs> it it it's part of the DNA of this story it's not about that in any way um and maybe another episode would be set in the 1920s and be about the hypocrisy of of British people and which I think this is in some ways but not by any means about their colonial history I'm just talking now yeah (laughs) no but I get it that's that's kind of where this episode leaves you though because um yeah it's just it's (laughs) it it is what it is um and for once that's not a bad thing (laughs) it's funny no no, it's exactly because it's not about that, and and we can still see that it, it's there even if it's not being explored. Um, yeah. What was I going to say? The thing with the wasp, though, that's more frustrating is like the fact that it's such a convoluted uh, solution to this mystery, and it got me thinking because like obviously the 
the the kernel of this episode is the fact that Agatha Christie went missing for 10 days and doesn't remember what happened. And this is a true story. And so this is what the episode is mm. built around. It's like, what happened during those 10 days? And it's funny to me because like, they chose to go with a fucking alien wasp as this the villain. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which they have to go through this whole like, oh, its brain is a jewel and the jewel is connected. Like activated and took in Agatha Christie's stories and that's why everything's being played out like an Agatha Christie novel and it's like that just seems like such an unnecessarily unwieldy way to to explain what's happening here and I think an explanation is needed because it's Doctor Who and that's also part of the fun is like of like you know why is this like it is here's why um but then again like because we're creative I couldn't help but think about a better like an alternative to this and my thought was like how much for me how much better it would have been if this episode were like an agatha christie clone like agatha christie was the murderer basically was where my mm. brain led me because you'd never yeah. anticipate that you know and like i don't know she spent 10 days on a killing spree and then because she was a clone <laughs> or something and then yeah like the wasp can already disguise itself as a person so like it's technically there you know you, you could run with it yeah exactly it's more like because like Agatha Christie is so famous for like even though she didn't like pioneer these concepts like for doing the the surprise reveal and hiding masterfully who the killer is and so you have spoilers if you haven't read any of her novels but like um you have uh the murder of roger Ackroyd, where like the unreliable narrator of the story is the murderer and it's like hidden in plain Mm. sight or murder on the orient express where they all did it which they joke about in this episode and like that's so clever because it's like it's the whole thing of like hiding the killer in plain sight and so having agatha christie be the murderer would have been amazing because you're never going to suspect Agatha Christie fucking murdered people. <laughs> yeah, truly. Um, but obviously that's not good critique because I'm just saying what I would have preferred have happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it helps though that like, it's it's maybe like a preference, but I don't I don't need it for this one. Like I, no. I needed the Doctor's Daughter to be something different. I think Unicorn and the Wasp is pretty much perfect as it is. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> I still stand by that the alien concept is convoluted, uh, but it doesn't wreck my enjoyment. Well, that's it. Like, I I think it's more just like, I don't, I don't expect it to be well-written if it's already achieving, like uh, for me, Unicorn the Wasp achieves the emotional truth better than it achieves its theoretical potential. Um, And sometimes that balance is wrong. This time it's right. Um, So yeah. Agreed. Great. Uh, well, I'm going to give Unicorn and the Wasp uh, an A. <laughs> Me too. A, A, A. An A. A's across the board. Um, well, it's nice to have an episode that we hate and an episode we love side by side. Yeah. This has been a, a good balance for us. <laughs> um, <coughs> look, I think a pat on the back to us. We got through an episode. Well done. Um, we had Doctor Who news to talk about. Another well done. Uh, we're so happy to be back, everybody. So well done to you for listening. <laughs> yep. James hates <laughs> it when I do this. Um. I truly, I truly do. But you know what I don't hate? 
my you dear listener uh if you don't hate us uh please feel free to head over to itunes and uh give us a rating and a review because it really helps our show grow and whatnot um as we said at the top of the show you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at two hearts pod that's two the number two and if you want to have your thoughts and feelings read which you know if you're out there and you've got thoughts and feelings on the rtd stuff coming back we would genuinely love to hear from you on this topic so feel free to email us at two hearts podcast at gmail.com that's two the word too. Um, I'm personally, you can find me on Twitter at OMG More James. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Theatricalum. Great. Uh, we will be back in, in two weeks' time promise you it'll be in two weeks time uh to discuss uh the as you said before the the real dry run for the Moffat era um silence in the library two-parter which is just a a, a bona fide classic yeah it's probably the weakest of his rtd stories but you know by that measure it's also one of the better episodes so mm. it Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. Um, all right. As always, stay safe, be kind to each other, and uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye. Bye.